Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. It is over 90 degrees in Cambridge today. I am on my second or third uh, tall boy gin and tonic, so God knows how this is going to go. And we are talking about the Civilization V Brave New World. Uh, joining me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be back. It's uh, not here as often as it should be, but uh, it's always nice to have a chance to talk about Civ. Uh, yeah, we would love to have you back more often, but you're just such a goddamn shill these days. I don't know what to do about it. I know. It's problematic that we do so many strategy games that evolve now. It does make my life on the podcast quite difficult, but we have theme shows and the like we'll be able to work out. And all of my fans will hear me again. And regular pay is pretty sweet, so I think it's probably a fair trade-off overall. We also welcome back a couple uh, recurring guests. Uh, first, we have freelance writer Rowan Kaiser. Rowan, welcome back. Good to be back. I think this is the first time I've actually been on one with Troy, though. It is. Wait, it's really? Just, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is my fourth, I think. That's the first time we've been here together. Oh, yeah. man, that's going to explode so many fan theories about the nature <laughs> of reality on Three Moves Ahead. Uh, and finally, we welcome <laughs> back our friend uh, Fraser Brown. Fraser, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. Especially happy to talk about Civ Five. Yeah, Fraser, you uh, you reviewed it for PC Games N, where I also do a lot of writing these days, and uh, I was glad to see that your review was kind of on what I consider to be the side of God uh, when it comes <laughs> to Brave New World. I'm I'm really impressed with that uh, with that expansion, and uh, you know to to start us out just a little bit, uh, you know, Fraser, I guess we'll start with you because you have the least experience on Three Moves Ahead here. So, new guy uh, gets to <laughs> lay out the bullet point information about Brave New World. Tell us what this is all about and why you liked it so damn much honestly it feels more like civ 6 it seems to fix almost every problem that i had with the core game while adding a slew of new and deep features so you've got more trade actual meaningful engaging trade where you send out ships and caravans you've got culture being completely overhauled so instead of was it the utopia project was that what it was before yeah 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 so instead of that naff utopia project culture is almost more like a weapon where you're gathering armies of artists and writers to impress other nations uh, and then you've also got the addition of the World Congress, or of course you can call it whatever you want, um, which is a little bit like Alpha Centauri's uh, United Nations, uh, where you can make massive global decisions and uh, get in grudge matches with foreign powers. Uh, it's huge. It's mind-bogglingly vast. So yeah, overall very impressed with it. And, I mean, certainly with, with this many changes in play, uh, actually, it's calling it Civilization VI is either a line I used in my review or got cut from my review. But I have a similar <laughs> sort of, this no longer feels quite like Civ V. And when you're making this many changes uh, to a game that was already pretty tightly designed, it can be a little, um, I think there's a risk, certainly, of uh, you know a Frankensteinian quality uh, cropping up. And I'm curious, uh, Troy, whether you felt... Uh, Brave New World falls into any sort of traps as it tries to really make some dramatic changes uh, to, to an already extant uh, design. A little bit. Uh, I mean, this is a game that, I mean, let's go back to Gods and Kings, which introduced espionage and religion, two systems that were kind of half thought out. Uh, espionage was especially poorly implemented because it always is. Uh, but at least it were, there were comprehensible systems that were kind of separate and you could understand them in their own terms. 
Um, Brave New World takes all of these little mini systems that were kind of separate in Civ Five, all very important, but kind of separate, and mixes them together in a really complicated way. So there's a lot of relearning and retooling that you have to do in Brave New World that I found that I didn't have to do in Gods and Kings. I wouldn't say it's necessarily Frankensteinian, but it is there's quite a lot of new stuff mixing together in new and interesting ways that requires, you know, me dropping back one or two difficulty levels just so I understand how everything works. Um, which is kind of neat, uh, because it is, I always like learning a new Civ game, and this is kind of like learning a brand new Civ game, uh, but it also, in some ways, stretches um, some of the systems in uh, ways that I'm not sure were entirely thought out, but uh, in whole, it's really quite an accomplishment that Ed Beach has put together here. So I think the the first thing I'd like to get into with Brave New World is the culture victory and sort of what you were describing there, Fraser, of the, uh, you know, you are now in a race to impress and influence other nations uh, with the output of your uh, writers and artists uh, and... You know, to to talk about that, it's it's such a dramatic change. It's a complete break from uh, any sort of model of culture victory Civ had in the past, either in Civ Four or or in uh, original Civ Five. And uh, you know, I'm curious. You know, Rowan, turning to you as our resident uh, culture critic, uh, how you felt this, uh, how you feel this new system works in practice, and uh, you know what, you know whether whether you really whether you enjoyed the uh, sort of great works collection minigame. Um, I think that for a while I was really impressed with it. Uh, it was it basically added a second or a third dimension, another dimension to something that desperately needed it. Because if you were trying to get a culture victory in original Civ Five, it was basically click next turn a whole lot and hope that no one declares war on you. And then when you start really getting the culture buildings and start developing a variety of different um, uh, great artists and great writers and so on and especially when you start getting the archaeologists at first there's really like a kind of dash to do different things and collect it and make sure it all works again and then as I've kept playing the game where I'm aiming for a culture victory um, it goes back to clicking next turn over and over again so there's there's like a section a middle section of the game where it's really really good and really improved but the deeper I get into trying to actually make it work the less less enamored I get of it. That's interesting, because for me, I had a, uh, a very different experience, I have to say, where I, I think the, you know, just sort of counting down to the end has always been sort of a pitfall for the culture victory. Uh, Civ 4 was, an, it was an incredibly passive uh, victory type. And in Civ 5, it was slightly more ambitious. Uh, it required more trade-offs. You had to be a smaller empire. Uh, here, they, they've, they've really sort of split that off from the uh, culture penalty you take for empire size and turned it into sort of a distinct line of play. But, you know, certainly in the games I've played, uh, while there is an element of uh, you know just clicking and turn and waiting for your tourism value, uh, which is kind of the uh, the way the game describes it is the offensive culture power and culture is the defense. When your tourism begins to overtake uh, other nations' cultural strength and they fall under your influence, it it can there can be a bit of a waiting game aspect to that. But I do find at least uh, in a lot of the games I play 
there are enough, you know, out of the usual mix of civilizations in play, there's usually one or two that are culturally strong enough that it's really a long shot whether or not I can trust that I'll be able to overtake them uh, by game's end. And so for me, at least, culture victory turned into more of a, uh, you know, more of a competitive victory type. Uh, I actually had to uh, sort of a routine feature now of my culture, of my attempts at a culture victory is the uh, cultural warfare where I've just got to go and annihilate a sieve because they simply have too much culture for me to uh, win through tourism. Yeah, I think that's the point I'm getting to um, in my game. I'm it's it's very slow. I think I've made too big of a world, so I'm spending a lot of time waiting in between turns, but. I'm basically at the point where I need to go take Ethiopia's capital city, and then then it'll be 200 turns less waiting. See, what you said, Rob, about it being like going out and having a war to get that cultural victory, um, that happened almost immediately when I was playing as Venice, which, of course, gets no settlers. Uh, so to try and get a cultural victory, I had to constantly start conquering not other civilizations, but other city-states. So I was able to great build these great works, because there was absolutely no way for me to actually get, gather enough tourism to be able to compete against other cultural civs. So it inspires new ways to play. So you, you, you might win a cultural victory by being quite peaceful. But if you're locked into this one city, you have to go out and actually get quite aggressive. And culture victories, I mean, they've always been, you know, the tool of the small empire. But in many ways, what this new way of doing things, this new culture system does, is it really forces you as the leader or a mid-range power to kind of pirouette. Um, like you, you can't be an entirely passive cultural player now. You have to be aware of who else is out there gaining culture. You have to think about when do I declare war, who's stronger. Um, and if your culture isn't there, you aren't competing in that level, you have to either take out the opposing strong culture or try to promote some of your own just to stay in that game. Civ um, so Five always had this problem where you had to pick your victory condition that you're going for relatively early because either certain civilizations were biased towards certain victory conditions or just because they took so long to build towards. You have to plan what you're doing in order to get there. Um, what I really like about the way the culture system, the diplomatic system, how they all do interlock is I do find myself having to adapt, having to adjust. The game that I'm playing now, I'm playing as China, um, and I took out half of Siam because they were just in my way. And meanwhile, the Siamese, just in the capital city, have just been pumping everything into wonders and culture, and they're going to be a big pain in the ass. If it wasn't for the Songhai invading my empire, I would take that city out, but they have the Great Wall, so I can't, I can't cross into Siam all that easily because the Great Wall slows down all my troops. And meanwhile, they're just pumping out culture, 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 great work, great work, great work, and it's a reckoning that I think I'm going to have to face because my culture is just in the toilet right now. Uh, for a number of reasons, uh, not all my fault, but I'll take some of them. Uh, and I think that it, what I, w I was going for, you know, a more aggressive type strategy, but now I have to either, my aggression isn't against my military rivals now, but it's against a cultural rival right on my doorstep. I can't focus on Morocco. I can't focus on Songhai because sooner or later, Siam is just going to wipe my culture off the map. 
and I think this little pirouette, then you see the diplomatic victory conditions as well, how you have to isolate your enemies. Um, I think it really adds a nice touch to the late mid and the end game that uh, wasn't there uh, before. And I really like how that's uh, being, how that's been implemented. Yeah, you know, I'm going to make a, an analogy to our official uh, board game of Three Moves Ahead. That would be Agricola. Um, Agricola, the vanilla Agricola, uh, you, you, choose a, you choose a deck to play with, and there's a basic deck of cards that have different occupations on them and different uh, upgrades you can have for your little subsistence farm uh, at, the, at the close of the, uh, of the uh, Thirty Years' War era. And then there's another deck called the Interactive Deck, uh, which is all just like screw your neighbor powers, and it all makes it much more of a guessing game about what the other guy's got in his hand, what he's going to do. Uh, and it makes it actually, it, it goes from being this almost like, um, you know, concurrently played solo, uh, solitaire strategy game, to this really cutthroat, uh, I'm going to be the best farmer ever, and I'm going to burn your farm to the ground while I do it. Uh, that's kind of what the Interactive de Deck does in Agricola, and I kind of feel like Brave New World is the Interactive deck uh, for Civ. It just cre it just makes all the same systems uh, suddenly matter a lot more in the context of relations with other players. And you were talking about um, you know the the, uh, the 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 culture stuff there, Troy. And I started to think about the ways that now culture is also tied into religion and trade, uh, really in in in, a, in this really lovely fashion. If you look at sort of the rate of your tourism overtaking uh, other countries' culture, that is affected by a number of variables, and you can uh, it can either be penalized or buffed depending on certain factors. Like if you have a trade route open with another civilization, they are more susceptible to your tourist influence. You get like a you know 25% buff. If you are co-religionists, you get like another 25% buff. Uh, and these things can all stack together to the point where uh, suddenly your, your tourist output begins to just like overtake them really quickly. And I love how this turns into the... It, it adds this new dimension to the uh, other, other strategic systems here as you begin to consider, well, okay... I'm making a ton of money from these trade routes with uh, Siam, but unfortunately, it's also basically allowing Siam to put my civilization under its influence. So do I cut those ties? Uh, do I need to somehow convert my empire to a different religion to lessen my susceptibility to that? And I just, I love how all of these, all of these systems that could be really sort of disconnected and, and just like uh, almost just, you know, bullet point features turn into... Uh, you know, all factors in sort of the in the in, in the broader strategic landscape. It's like if you're making a hamburger, and the original Civ Five was like the meat and the bun, and then Gods and Kings was like the onions and the <laughs> lettuce, and then this is the cheese. The special. This sauce. is the cheese that the all of a sudden makes the, the hamburger yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god, this is the best hamburger I've ever had. But I gotta agree that the Gods and Kings was the onion, and like it was like, yeah, that's okay. Where are we going with this? And now it's like, you know, you know, oh, you went somewhere. Now, now it's now it's a Big Mac. Hell yeah! Gods and Kings <laughs> is now better because the things introduced uh, in Gods and Kings, like religion and espionage, are now a lot more engaging with Brave New World. I mean, the way right. you can use spies when you're going for like a diplomatic victory or when you're just trying to play the World Congress mini game, uh, it's a great benefit. 
um, and and religion when you're trying to spread culture, uh, your culture again, really helpful. So it all ties into the, like the previous expansion as well, which I was really impressed by. So it's not something that should necessarily be overlooked. Yeah, it's it's like a linear progression, I think. Yeah, as opposed yeah. to like this is suddenly so much better than the others. No, it just like ties it all together. Like geez. exactly. <laughs> sort of. It's sort Sorry, of. Vegans. But sort of. It's a throw another throw another uh, misguided metaphor into this conversation. I kind of felt like Gods and Kings was a bridge, but when it released, it was a bridge to nowhere. It was like, okay, <laughs> this is okay. So it's got religion and spies now, and you're just sort of standing there looking at the sheer drop into the water below. Like, okay, I've driven out here, and okay, I'm gonna go back to Civ Five now. Uh, here, I feel like you you you've got something exciting uh, waiting on the other side of the systems. But Fraser, you specifically brought up espionage, and I, I think uh, you know if memory serves, we were not entirely. Uh, kind to the espionage system in Gods and Kings, and in general, it wasn't great. It wasn't yeah, and in great general, they, they're kind of troublesome. How does uh, how does Brave New World sort of make that relevant, and engaging in a way it wasn't before? I think it just makes it broader. I mean, I'll admit that I didn't use espionage a huge amount in the early game, but Brave New World is ostensibly a late game expansion. So when you've unlocked World Congress by discovering all the other civilizations and uh, unlocking the printing press, if memory serves, um, all of a sudden espionage becomes really important. Um, you can find out so much about other civilizations that you can then exploit when it comes to voting or passing bills. Um, it just it feels like espionage rather than just a mechanic that people wanted that Fraxis just added because people had been clamoring for it. Now it feels meaningful. Um, so yeah, I was really impressed how it grew. It also ties into the culture thing because that's one of the buffs you can get. Is you send a spy as a diplomat, then you get the twenty five percent buff. It just seems more nuanced now, um, and it kind of in Gods and Kings it was just kind of forgettable. I mean, I actually I really liked the religion uh, stuff in Gods and Kings, but espionage I really didn't care about it at all. Yeah, it was it was like they had seen what other civs did, where you like created spy units and had them wander all through everyone else's civilizations, and it was really micromanaging and annoying, and they decided to go in the opposite direction and went a little bit too far, I think. Yeah. So it was it was almost non-existent, I felt. Yeah, at least at least now it's a, it's kind of an interesting uh, worker allocation game, and it's one that uh, integrates really nicely uh, with the with the World Congress, which actually. Boy, this might be my favorite implementation of the whole uh, planetary council uh, notion that started with Alpha Centauri. This might be my favorite implementation uh, of that whole idea. Yeah, there's just so much happening with the uh, World Congress. And because of the fact that you get uh, city-states votes as your own, if you can lock them down as allies, it becomes a real question as to whether uh, you know, you're going to have your spies doing spy stuff uh, you know, in the city states, making sure that you know coups break your break your way, you're rigging elections, or whether you're going to have them uh, set out to other players, uh, being working as diplomats. I, I kind of felt actually that was a little bit of a um, a cop out to make spies maybe a little more relevant. Is that you can't make World Congress trades with other players unless a diplomat slash spy is in their capital. That struck me as a little bit. Um, 
like kind of this, uh, you know, a bit of a ramrodding approach to making the spy matter a little bit more. But as a resource allocation question, uh, it, it becomes a little more interesting. Uh, Troy, you know, it's it's something that um, at least a shortcoming I ran into with the World Congress a little bit is that uh, while there's a lot of cool stuff happening with it, uh, the AI tends to have a really sort of narrow vision of its self-interest, and there were times where, in my games at least, getting these getting these guys to see the writing on the wall about how a vote would go, it was like herding cats, and I'm curious whether you had uh, any, any sort of different experience or whether it was kind of chaotic for you as well. Well, no, but then that's always been a problem with the Civ AI. I mean, it's always very narrowly focused. It doesn't see the good in a short-term deal. I mean, the classic example is in, in, in trading luxury resources. If you want to get a We Love the King Day, and you have, I have one of our res- a luxury resource, and you have one of our resource, we can swap them, and our happiness isn't going to go down. Just we get new We Love the King Days, and it's a fair deal. Uh, but the AI will never go for that, even though it's a perfectly reasonable, sound, strategic choice. Um, you know, that's just a bone-stupid thing the AI should be able to, to think about and know about. So the fact that it can't properly do diplomacy or understand who the threats are to who its perceived threats are uh, in the diplomatic congress is really not a surprise. Um, I do like that it competes very aggressively for the city-states all the way through the game. Um, the city-states are much more important. And there are more ways to get them on your side uh, now than before, um, and the AI will aggressively fight for them. Um, com- from you know at least uh, the Middle Ages onward, will fulfill their quests to prepare those to build those strong relationships and get them in place for the World Congress when they really start to matter. It used to be you wanted all these city states for their luxuries. That was really the only important thing about them was well, how many whales can they give me? How many pearls can they give me? Um, and then you get one ten at the very end for a diplomatic victory. So then you. Spend a whole lot of gold to outbid Alexander at the end, and that would be that's what city states were for, pretty much. Little bonuses here and there, but that's really what they were for. Now those votes become so important, um, and they get increasingly important as the ages move on. So, you know, the first World Congress vote, city states are irrelevant; no one cares. Uh, but they let you know, hey, the next vote that comes along, these guys each get a vote, or the next time these get two votes, and so that power starts multiplying and multiplying. So it's not something you can leave too late because, as you said, the diplomat spy thing is a scarce resource problem. You don't have all that money, uh, all that all that many of them to pass out, which one of the big bonuses for that change to the system is it makes England not as crappy a sieve as it was before. <laughs> so that extra diplomat uh, at the start is a yeah. huge deal uh, now. That is not a small thing to have one extra diplomat um, in the Renaissance age um, and all the way through. That is a really, really important thing. Now it's not just, well, you have an extra diplomat and they can do stuff. Oh, and your boats move better. Uh, England's got a really nice little tool there. I like how they've redone a lot of the old sieves and how the, how the new systems make their old strengths uh, take on a new coloration. And uh, I think the World Congress, yeah, it is an AI problem, um, but at least it does compete for the, for the uh, city-states all the way through, uh, which, is, which is an AI problem that it has had in other uh, iterations. Uh, the the city-states were the things that I hated the most around original Civ Five. Like, I did not like Civ Five at all until I just started playing with the city-states turned off. And then gods and kings made them tolerable, but I still didn't like them. But now I actually like see what the point is. They 
like their importance has been increased in the certain areas that make them seem more relevant and decreased in the areas that had annoyed me and all of a sudden like yeah city-states bring them on yeah, I, I think they, their importance has changed so much. I, I, I think I think Rowan, honestly, you're a little bit late to the to the city state party. To be honest, I, I think they were actually a little bit cooler, maybe than you gave them credit for. But I had a similar reaction when I first saw them. Well, it, what I felt like what they did was they changed the AI's focus to always being concentrated on the city states instead of with rival civs. Um, so that led to a much more passive AI in the vanilla form. Um, and this is this is basically my big problem with Civ Five, and still is probably my main problem with it, though it's not quite so important, is that it seems like the AI doesn't doesn't rub up against me in the early game especially. And like in the game I'm in now, they've never declared war on me. And this just feels like a bit of a problem. Rowan just wants that AI to rub up on him. It'll feel <laughs> yeah. so right. Uh, maybe I'm just unlikable because they're always <laughs> bloody declaring war on me. <laughs> a, a, a lot does depend on the civs that you're playing against. I think the civs, yeah. civs I mean, some of them, I mean, the, the, the Assyrians, they'll just send up siege tower after siege tower after you to get that big bonus they have for capturing a city. They get a free tech. I mean, the Assyrians are, they're the worst neighbors since Montezuma in Civ Four. They're not people you want to be around. Um, but the Shoshone, I mean, they just have their big borders. They'll just plop down and they'll suck you in and fight you. Um, so Shoshone are one of the people who are right next to me, and they, they've been my best friend until I declared war on another one of their friends for a culture bonus. <laughs> yep. See, my, in my experience, the Zulu are the ones to watch. I've been playing a Venetian game, and I'm quite close to the Zulu Empire, which is quite large. And obviously, Venetian Empire, very, very small. Um, and for in the early game, all they were doing was like asking me to declare war on other people. And after I declined like two, three times, they just declared war on me uh, and another Civ. And it's basically like a world war. And we're only in, I think we've just reached the Renaissance era. And it's a total mess. Uh, yeah, they do love the bloodshed. Uh, you know, just in terms of the the AI declaring wars and such, I, I don't know, this is incredibly anecdotal based on just a few games of uh, Brave New World I've had. Uh, but uh, certainly, in my experience, the with regard to matters of war and peace... Uh, and I guess maybe even tying into uh, the, the spy game a little bit, the AI as a whole is a little more uh, sensibly aggressive. I, I've noticed it's more likely to try and uh, boost technologies out of your capital if it can, uh, and uh, just sort of blithely send missionaries into your territory, uh, whether you you know beg them not to or not. And then I've seen a couple really cool things for me. The for new the for me the new uh, bait noir of of of. Brave New, Brave New World uh, has to be uh, Alexander and the Greeks because now the, his city-state bonuses are so incredibly powerful once the World Congress forms, and the guy is just a raving sociopath uh, in general. <laughs> in Civ. he's just he's just a complete uh, bastard. So you know what was really cool in in my game as Morocco is that 
you know, basically a global conspiracy against Greece formed where <laughs> I had um, Suleiman show up and he was like, uh, we're going to we're going to gank the shit out of out of Greece uh, real soon here. You, you want in on this? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Give me 10 turns. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you the sign. <laughs> and then like uh, 10 turns later, um, he, you know, Suleiman Selzin declared war, but uh, Montezuma uh, showed up and was like, yeah, Alexander is it's just not working out. Uh, I think he's got to go. And I was like, yeah, give me 10 turns. Absolutely. And so basically Alexander was just sort of sitting there rocking the world, the Congress and sort of, easily gliding toward a uh, a uh, World Congress victory, a diplomatic victory. And then suddenly, you know, three of the major civs in the world, just in the space of, you know, 10 turns, all declared war on him, all took his overseas holdings and landed troops on his mainland. And I was like, wow, I don't think I've seen, I don't think I've seen the AI get its shit together like this, uh, you know, ever in Civ Five. Uh, and this was, it was a really cool, like, you know, coordinated, decapitation strike against Alexander and it uh, worked beautifully. Now I, of course, got the most out of it, but I was still pleased to see the AI sort of in there pitching with a, uh, an awareness that they were going to, you know, th that they were getting screwed and to build an alliance around that. The stars must just have aligned in that game because I've never <laughs> seen something quite as dramatic. It, I've, I've played uh, three games uh, to completion. One of them a very short one. Uh, and I'm on my fourth, and it's nothing quite as crazy as that has happened. Also, I find Morocco, I mean, I think that was the first uh, Civ that I played as. Um, I didn't, I had a really easy time of it, uh, especially when I got to the, the uh, World Congress stage, because I had so much money. It yeah. was, I had more money than I knew what to do with, and culture as well, because all those trade routes really boost your culture. Um, or at least the, the way that you influence city-states. So when it came to the World Congress, I was the host, and I never stopped being the host, and I got a diplomatic victory, despite the fact that I had wasn't even gunning for a diplomatic victory. No, it just and this happened. Is, see, this is actually the big danger with the AI, is just their, their one mistake. And actually, I don't think it was even this bad in, in Alpha Centauri, because in Alpha Centauri, it seemed like the AI would know that you had to create voting alliances in order to break the hold of the guy with the biggest delegate lead. You had to do it. And they Definitely. Would, they would rally behind one one player and pick the lesser of two evils and get that guy the new planetary governorship. In, in uh, Brave New World, every time it comes time to pick who's going to be the host, everybody votes for himself. <laughs> and so if you get that home court advantage by being the first host of the, uh, of the World Congress... It's going to be really tough, assuming some catastrophe doesn't happen to the city-state allies. It's going to be really tough for that, that advantage to be lost. And uh, it's going to be very tough to counter. The AI will not be able to counter it on its own. And that is just that was a, that was a disappointment. I find that really frustrating. I've been playing this, um, the beta of this game called Neocolonialism, uh, which is it's like a, a Marxist economic simulator. Oh, is that from Subaltern as... Games? Um, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, you're yeah. like playing the the evil capitalists. But right. one of the the most uh, awesome parts of, of this game is where uh, you have to get enough votes in each region to get a prime minister. And one of the corporations will become prime minister, and then can kind of uh, expand the mines and the factories. And everyone who has 
delegates in that area get some sort of you know benefit so sometimes it's best just to make sure someone is prime minister because if everyone votes for themselves nobody will win uh, unless someone has like more votes uh, which often isn't the case. So that kind of alliance of convenience was something I really missed in Brave New World, because uh, they aren't really keen to do that. They will just vote for themselves regardless. Speaking of the AI screwing itself over, um, what happened in my game that I'm trying to finish was that Venice, all of a sudden, when it came time for the next World Congress to be chosen, they basically allied with every single city-state. So they have nine votes, and nobody else has more than four. But then they start annexing all those city-states. So they're taking away their no. votes with every annexation. <laughs> it's well, they, they it's can't be annexed. They must be making puppet states, right? Because they can't yeah. actually annex them. Because right. that's not something that Venice can do. But Although either way, they, they lose their independence. They're no longer yeah. a vote. Yeah they're, yeah, they're they're purple on the map now. Yeah, regardless of how they're doing it. That's not very smart. No, no. <laughs> Silly AI. But it, it is possible that they were having pressure from. Um, a couple of the other civs and decided that they need to, needed well, to have those units or something. I mean, but. in in my game is Venice certainly. We should just okay. We should just talk about Venice because Venice is incredible. They're so weird, and I I like it. If this it's is the new so direction hard, of faction design, let's keep going. Yeah. So Venice, their whole deal is you you are you are a city state basically. You can't have more than one city. Uh, you can have a lot of puppets. But you can't govern. You can't have a huge empire that you're governing, uh, like like you know, from a central, uh, you know, central government. So their strength, though, is they they just have this mind-boggling capacity to make money, and then their merchant is the Merchant of Venice, um, and that dude is awesome because he goes out there and he can do a trade mission that just blows the doors off of your standard great merchant trade mission. Uh, the the merchant of Venice will net you like thousands of gold uh, in in one go, or he can just directly annex uh, a city state uh, and instead of running a trade mission. And I mean, certainly in my games as Venice, the pressure I've experienced because I try to not annex much, to, uh, not not uh, turn things into a puppet too much, but the pressure I ran into is it's really hard to have satisfactory scientific progress off of one city when everyone else is sort of expanding outwards that that it started to become really tough to win that race and losing that race causes you to start to lose the wonder race and things get just sort of snowballing against you so there is i think a pressure to start uh puppeteering as it were they also start off as quite weak in terms of military as well. And when you've got a trade empire, you need land and naval units to protect those trade routes, uh, initially from barbarians who are much more infuriating now that we've got trade routes oh, I hate uh, them and so much enemy more. civs. Um, so you really need to, I mean, one of the best things to do is to choose the uh, exploration tree, mm -hmm. which is one of the new policies. Uh, social policies, uh, because that gives you some some naval benefits. But really, I find it very difficult to just do a trade mission instead of actually outright making a uh, city state a puppet. Because I really I, and I needed that sort of buffer between the larger empires as well. So speaking of the new policies, how do we feel about the ideologies? I I really like them. I feel that they 
I got to a point about the 20th century, um, if not earlier, where I'd sort of maxed out all of the policies I wanted for a sieve, but with ideologies, it's it's like more customizable and it keeps me upgrading my civilization right to the end of the game. Uh, so I've I've yet to actually get to the point in a game where I can't choose anything else or I wouldn't want to. Uh, even and so when I finish a game, there's still things that I feel I could have explored, whereas that was never the case with the original policies. Yeah, I do like that. I'm a little unsure about the power of how they combine with tourism. Like I like that tourism has a net effect other than that you win, but in terms of like influencing other countries, like in my game, it's I am the like. Um, cultural and scientific leader of the world and the Zulus are the military leaders of the world and we both have autocracy so basically anyone who chooses anything else is screwed and it just I don't know maybe I just set my difficulty level too low on this game but it kind of makes it all a little boring you can also using the world congress make everyone follow your ideology and religion that is a tough vote to win um, I find it really easy in, in when I had yep. Morocco it was like a landslide it was hysterical. Yeah, I felt really bad for everyone because they had no chance to win any, like any of these propositions I made. I love Fraser's actually like concerned whether the AI is having a good time or not. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh man, that was that was really cheap. I felt really bad about that, but yeah. I had some friends there. I'd like Gandhi. He was like, "Oh man, what are you doing? I don't want to. I don't want to be autocratic. I love my freedom." And he was getting really upset. I felt bad. Men must be governed, Gandhi. Men must be governed. Uh, Troy, what what do you make of the ideologies? Because I, I know that our I know that our buddy Tom Chick actually cited this in one in his review over on Quarter to Three as maybe the most uh, sort of cobbled together aspect of the game, and it was kind of what I was obliquely referring to when I said there was a risk of sort of a Frankensteinian quality cropping up. So what, you know, what, what's your take on the addition of ideologies sort of slotting into the culture tree there? I'm still experimenting with them. I don't want to speak too strongly on them because I haven't gotten to the point where I've you know played enough campaigns where I can see how they all match up against each other, whether they're all well-balanced, yada, yada, yada. Um, I do wonder if this would not have made more sense just as a as different social policies, different social perks. Maybe – I know they've, they've redone the social policies and they're really – impressive ways. I mean, it used to be you couldn't be pious and rational at the same time, but now you can. And you can pick piety early on uh, to get that extra bonus uh, tenet for your religion, uh, which many of which are quite nice. Um, so there is that kind of decision early on for which uh, ancient social policy, I mean, still liberty. I always still always go liberty. I see no reason not to go liberty. I still see no reason not to go liberty, which gives you the free worker and the free settler uh, and a free golden age uh, down that tech tree. So I see no reason not to start with that first. So unless you're yeah, Venetian and the Sattler is completely worthless. Yes, yeah. unless you're Venetian. <laughs> but Venice breaks all the rules uh, and does not really count uh, for anything. Uh, so we have all of these changes there in the social policy realm. Uh, it's now only seven or eight. Um, and then we have the ideology slot, which is a – if you haven't played it yet, it's um, – there are multiple tenets you can choose from. Tier 1, you need two Tier 1 tenets to get a Tier 2 tenet, and two Tier 2 tenets to get a Tier 3 tenet all the way down. They get stronger uh, as you work your way up. And the idea is 
different ideologies hate each other. Order and autocracy don't like freedom, etc. Um, and these uh, these play into the culture win as well, because if you don't, if those aren't getting along, then there's a culture penalty. Uh, so it all once again fits together, just like religion does. So I like the idea of it. It's still too soon for me to see too much about the execution, and I wonder if this could not have been done just by rethinking the way social policies interacted with each other, um, if they moved away from the everything as a perk system to you know, the old Civ for Civics model, where there are some penalties here and there for choosing. And maybe each Civ does have a favorite thing they're always going to go with, um, and they would like you to push along that path as well. Um, this just adds one more layer of things to look at. It's a really nice idea. It's a really nice tech tree. It does capture the end game of late industrial idea, ideas of nations getting modern and going down a certain path, etc. Uh, so I like how it fits with the history. It's really too soon for me to say with any conclusion whether I like how it fits as a mechanic. Um, if that makes any... I, I don't like having to choose between taking another social policy or taking a uh, ideology tenet. Um, I think those could be two separate trees, maybe. Uh, so I could keep so the culture doesn't have to go to one or the other. Um, I like hard choices in games, but this is just such a big shift in the game, asking me to distract myself from finishing up the commerce tree because, hey, you can unlock ideologies now. Um, it's, it takes so long to build that up. Um, I'm not quite sure if it's advancing well, I guess. It feels like the sort of thing that I would like there to be a really good mod for. Like, I like the idea, but I'm not quite sure that the way it's there is perfect. And it seems like the sort of thing that further experimentation might unlock what makes things good or bad about it. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's there's room for improvement. And it will be interesting to see what mods appear for uh, Brave New World. But I was really sold on the ideology things. I mean, I, I didn't feel that I was having to stop... Uh, unlocking social policies because I felt that a lot of the time most of the social policies I really wanted because I had a clear idea of how I wanted my civilization to develop I'd already got yep. and I would have just been faffing around trying to fill in the tree but then when you've got ideologies it's not about like clicking on everything it's about selecting a distinct path and the great thing is that because you're selecting one thing and ignoring another, you can get two civilizations who are both autocratic, but they have completely different boons and benefits. Uh, so it, you can use that ideology again in another game, but have a completely different civilization uh, with completely different uh, benefits. I love that. It, it makes things a lot more fresh when it comes to starting up a new game. And I'm sure I'm, I'm going to play Brave New World a lot more than I played any of the other, uh, any Civ Five or, or uh, Gods and Kings, uh, because there's just so much new stuff each time you play a game. Yeah, it, it's, there's definitely a lot, a lot going along with it. It just, it does feel like Rob said, like it's a little bit of a Frankenstein at times. Um, like I like the ideas, but I'm not quite sure that it quite integrates as nicely as the other things all integrate. See, I think it is a smooth transition. It's like once you hit that modern age, then you shift from social policies to ideologies. Um, it, it seems thematically consistent. Uh, less cobbled together and more just a natural progression. One thing I actually liked about the system quite a bit, and 
Unbalance, I actually really, really enjoy the ideologies, even if aesthetically they don't maybe slot in to the uh, culture tree quite as uh, nicely as they could. One thing I really love, though, is that it sort of established them, establishes them as this modern replacement for religion. Now, the religious bonuses still matter, but it's the second, it's this, it's the second uh, opportunity you get to sort of redefine the, the, the buffs and penalties that your civilization uh, you know, is experiencing, uh, this time for an entirely different set of beliefs. And I, and I kind of, uh, you know, just, just from a, a thematic standpoint, I enjoy that, uh, you know, just the, the role ideology played in the you know, 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, but, but I think it's just, it, it's, it's kind of nifty, it's a kind of nifty way to bring some of the same stuff you saw in the uh, the arms race to get religious, uh, you know, re- religion powers, basically religious bonuses, uh, to to have a second chance uh, to sort of tweak and fine tune uh, your civilization's uh, progression. I, I I largely enjoyed that, uh, but there, you know, the, to go back to something that you brought up earlier, Fraser, because because I I really love this aspect of uh, Brave New World. You talked about guarding trade routes, and I got to say that Brave New World, more than I think just about any other Civ I can name, uh, is really a game about power projection. In previous Civs, you could totally afford to kind of you know kind of ignore the military a little bit, or if you were land power, you could totally ignore the navy a little bit. Here, if if you want to really sort of have a competitive uh, money making machine you really have to be prepared to defend your interests abroad. And given the length of these trade routes, because uh, they are traced across a map, given the, the dangerous neighborhoods these things go through, suddenly you have an entirely different incentive to build a military and go send your troops abroad to go fight you know, pirates, uh, you know, barbarians, or uh, to go take out a sieve that is uh, you know, plundering your trade routes uh, just because you know you're having you know you're you're at war and your territory has to pass that your your trade routes have to pass through theirs. There's this entirely new set of reasons uh, to be forced to go engage abroad, and I think that's kind of uh, you know in keeping with a lot of things that Brave New World is going has going for it. There is just this constant pressure in Brave New World to get out of the borders of your civilization, go abroad, and go knock some heads together. Yeah, the the archaeologists are like that too. It made me a very aggressive player, which is odd for me because I'm I tend to be quite peaceful in civilization. Um, but it was it was in small increments. Like uh, I'll go back to Venice again because I really do bloody love Venice. Um, when I started out, I was just sending out triremes to scout basically to make sure trade routes were safe and there weren't any, uh, you know barbarians or enemy civs plundering my roots um, but eventually got to the point where I was building like fleets of, uh, of galleys or get the Galleus which is the uh, the unique uh, Venetian uh, naval vessel and I was just sending them out all across the world just getting in fights with everyone to make sure the sea was basically empty apart from my vessels uh, to ensure that I would always have safe trade routes. And I became a bit of a warmonger, um, which is very odd. And that was all just to protect my money, uh, which I love very much. 
Because <laughs> Venice yeah, really needs the money. That is its only, oh, yeah. that's its really its only asset. It has to buy everything. Yeah, especially um, if you forgo uh, like when you get your first Merchant of Venice when you unlock optics. Um, if you choose to buy a city instead of getting all of that money, then you are broke unless you have all, I think there's six trade routes they get, just as, as standard, which is two more than everyone else. Um, and you really, really need to, to get all those trade routes up and running uh, post-haste. I think the trade routes are like just in unqualified success, like putting Agreed. them physically on the map mm -hmm. and tying all the mechanics that they have with the culture and the religion to them is just a brilliant it's my favorite new feature. And the fact that it starts pretty much at the beginning of the game. I mean, this is, yeah, sure, this is a late game expansion, but trade goes throughout the game from, like, very early on. Uh, so it had an impact straight away. And sometimes the hardest decision is, where am I sending this caravan? Yeah. You know, it's, do I want to risk getting some Confucians in my nice little Catholic <laughs> state? Uh just for that extra gold, how much science am I giving away? Uh, but I really need that money coming in. Which city state is asking for a trade route? Can I take the cut in uh, income for you know ten turns while the city state is starting to like me? Um, there's there's so many little things that go into choosing which sieve to choose, and even just a few times, even just had the whole hammer rush, which you can do in Civilization uh, Five now, an old thing which was in. I remember Civ 2, you could build caravans and just rush wonders with them. Just build a whole lot of caravans, and they would just add stuff, add shields, the shields that have hammers then, uh, to a wonder. Now you can add production with caravans within your cities, add food or production, depending on um, what buildings you have there, uh, markets or uh, workshops. So you can even just try to get send trade routes to get that Leaning Tower of Pisa up faster. Uh, in a certain city, and they have there's such a flexible, simple, uh, little mechanic, and yeah, I think they are an unqualified success. I was kind of worried about them uh, when I first read about them. I thought oh, this is gonna be micromanagement hell, uh, but it turns out to be quite easy to handle with some really important consequences all through the game. And so nifty being able to have trade routes within your empire as well, because then all of a sudden your empire is quite busy. There's always something happening. Uh, and it does, you know, so even though the game makes you look outside of your borders, it also makes you look inside them as well. Uh, it seems that there's always a balance. And the next Europa Universalist is putting trade routes on the map like that, right? It's, it's a bit different. Um, I'm sure it is, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot more complicated as well. <laughs> like, and, a yeah, lot. Yeah, the, 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 the EU4, the routes... Trade routes already exist, but you can try to control the money going through those routes. So it's where you're sending the money and you've got different offices you can build like transit hubs or whatever. Um, it's, it's still very, it's very engaging, um, but it's a, definitely a lot more complicated than just sending a caravan out and making sure you maintain that route. And I love that Civ Five constantly reminds you these things are out there. It's so easy. It would be so easy to just put these things on autopilot and let them keep doing the same route over and over and over again. But the route stops and says, okay, now what do you want me to do? Um, so what could it be? I think they've timed it just right so that it's never an overwhelming, blinking reminder, hey, you've got caravans that aren't doing anything. Uh, but it does 
force you to come back and look at what has changed on the map and look at what the new opportunities are, something you might not otherwise be doing because we're so used to trade routes in Civ or other Forex games being completely superfluous and not having important long-term game-changing dynamics, which they do here. Uh, so the fact that they are time-limited and they do constantly remind you to be refreshed is, I think, a great UI and game design decision. And and it affects your research because like, I find myself instinctively saying, okay, this one adds another trade route. I'm going to do that. This one extends my trade routes. I'm going to do that. Like That's just my first choice now. And it maybe shouldn't be entirely, but... <laughs> That's what I'm going for. I'm playing as Portugal, which so the trade routes are just about as important to them as they are to Venice. What are the what are the benefits for Portugal? They they get double the them. money for uh, luxury variety on trade routes. Oh right, so, okay, that's quite cool. So I don't know exactly what the math on that is, but it means lots and lots of money. <laughs> yeah. Now there's. One other thing that uh, you know, the, the pacing for the for the late game just seems to be completely different in in Brave New World. And I don't know if this is just a function of more things are going on, so I'm just not uh, so I'm just not sort of spamming and turn as much, or whether it's also just because they they've maybe. Uh, they, they, they've maybe made the, uh, the the Great War era weapons a little more relevant than they were before. Uh, certainly for me, in previous games of Civ, it was sort of this instant, uh, you know, okay, Renaissance ends, we're up to musketeers and riflemen and cavalry and all that, and whoa, okay, here's here's uh, mechanized infantry and F-22s. Okay, here we go. Or an uh, XCOM squad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but here I, I I've you know I, I it certainly feels to me like there's a little more of a sensible late game uh, you know tech progression. Uh, there, there's a little more of a sense of slowly ramping up into modern and uh, current day uh, you know military technology that I think was lacking a little bit uh, before, and, and it's made it a little less. Uh, I, I sort of felt like. Falling behind a little bit on tech in previous, uh, you know, iterations of this game was really devastating once we reached the the modern period. Here, you can still be a little bit behind on tech, but still have a military that's useful for something that won't just get blown out of the water by, you know, a Panzer division, uh, which is a nice change because I think it's uh, it's 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 important that it's it's important that going to war be a more sensible decision in more cases in civilization because if if nobody really has an incentive to do that beyond like going for a domination victory it all turns into this sort of abstract worker management and production race uh to get to your various various victory conditions and here it just felt like you know from you know the 1800s onward at every step it just made a little bit more sense to maybe go on and, and declare war against somebody because you just had better you know slightly better tools to do that so i think while war has been improved i think that in the late game unless you were going for a military victory it was actually quite boring there wasn't a huge amount to do and it was clicking the next turn and just waiting things out but now because you've got all of these different paths, you can switch so easily, especially if you're 
you know, a trade empire. You can choose to go for the military victory and just buy a hell of a lot of troops. Or you can choose to exploit the World Congress. Or you can choose the cultural victory. I mean, there's a lot more options and things don't feel as set in stone as they did previously. But there was always more options and more things to do for military-minded civilizations. So regarding the age-old question, I guess, of, you know, basically as long as Civ Five has been around, the question has been, you know, is, is Civ Five really just really any kind of upgrade or is it more of a lateral move uh, for, the, for the series? And I, I think, you know, previously I was, I was always firmly in the camp of Civ Five is different than Civ Four. And in a lot of ways, Civ Four is a game I enjoy a little more. Uh, there's, I, while I appreciated the design of Civ Five, I, I wasn't necessarily sure it was a better civilization game. I'm not sure it gave me the things that I'd always sort of loved throughout the series. With with Brave New World, for me at least, I kind of feel like now I'm kind of getting the strengths of Civ Five's, uh, you know, really uh, sort of tidy design where you've really got to focus on uh, using the unique abilities of your empire and really kind of, you know, you know, plunge your hands into these systems and really learn how to use the trade and really learn how to manage golden ages and all that. Uh, th that's still happening in Brave New World, but I kind of feel like I'm getting the more expansive uh, end game of, hell, not even Civ 4, but maybe back going back to like Civ 2 when it was all about building these huge empires and sort of throwing them at each other. Uh, here, I kind of feel like the same thing is going on where I'm having the best of uh, the original part, the original design of Civ 5, but then I'm also getting a Civ experience that I haven't had in years, which is this kind of expansive, exciting, competitive endgame. Yeah, honestly, I think it's it's the best that the franchise has ever been. Uh, I know, which I know are bold words, but I, I just genuinely, I genuinely don't think that I've had as much fun playing. Uh, civilization as I have with 5. I mean, there was always the kind of... I mean, my first civilization was Civ 2. It was a, a gift from a family friend. Uh, I'd never heard of it before, and I was just sucked right into it. So that's always going to have... Uh, you know, there's always going to be a nostalgia, uh, and I'll be looking at it through rose-tinted glasses. But, um, yeah, Civ 5, it's the best Civ. I know that I make it sound like a fact, because it is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think my favorite Civilization experience has always been the Rise and Fall of Civilization mod for Civ 4. And Civ 5, from the beginning, adapted a lot of aspects of that, where it tried to have fewer units, it tried to have um, city-states were one of the big things that the Rise and Fall mod added, and really different and unique civilizations and civilization setups. Um, and I think Brave New World really gets to like some point of balance between what I loved about uh, the Rise and Fall mod and what Civilization V was trying to do on its own. Um, the World Congress was also a thing that the, that mod introduced that Civ Four really didn't do anywhere near as well. Um, but the thing that, since it's a mod for Civ 4 that I love primarily, um, the thing that I want to see Civ 5 do is actually release the DLL files for the in-depth modding, and then it'll probably be my favorite, assuming <laughs> that people can actually do anything with them. But um, given the mods that existed for Civ 4, like that's 
something that I think is entirely plausible. But I don't know. It, it's it's like a weird thing to say that you want, you know, the hood to be opened up a little more for it to be your favorite. But you know, I played a hell of a lot of that mod, so <laughs> I'm I'm steady in making that claim. I think. I'm not sure where I come down on this issue, whether it's the best ever, because I think I still hold it as a very parallel game to Civ for him. And Soren Johnson says, you know, Civ is always going to be, is always a tile-based game. But tile-based game, Civ in history, and once it's that, it's Civ. But I think there are such stark differences between the way that Civ 4 and Civ 5 in so many systems play together and play apart from each other that it is really hard for me to choose. I always was a fan of... I always liked a lot of Civ Five, and I did, haven't played a lot of Civ Four since Civ Five came out because I can't go back to Stacks of Doom. I mean, I just can't... I can't yeah. do it again. I just can't do it again. As much as I love uh, Civ Four and so many amazing things uh, that Firaxis did there, I can't go back to pile your units on one tile and ship them off to war. I, the AI may suck at tactical combat, but I don't. So I like having <laughs> the ability to move my cannon into the right position, and as long as Siam hasn't built the Great Wall Wonder, I'm in pretty good shape uh, to p- play a very interesting little mini-game that I like quite a bit. Um, but I do think that Civ Five came into its own with a lot of the late patches to the core game. Gods and Kings, I liked quite a bit in spite of the terrible implementation of espionage. I, I liked a lot of the new Civs and the way they changed the game quite a bit. Um, I think it's... We can't. I, I mean, I'd like to write more about. I did this whole national character series a few years ago. I mean, this game and a few others makes me want to expand on that because it does so many interesting things with uh, national powers, with how each civilization plugs into the system, but still has some sort of a commentary on the leader or the culture itself. Uh, they aren't just bonuses for the sake of bonuses. They actually fit quite well into an understanding of history and an understanding of how the new mechanics and the old mechanics fit together. Um, so th- even just you know adding the Assyrians and making Venice this super weird state, which if you read Venetian history, know any Venetian history, is a lot of fun to have you know this tiny little state building an empire in the eastern Mediterranean, you know, creating an entire government office just to handle these stupid little places they've conquered, these islands that no one else cares about. Um, the way that Civ does that, and with these amazing new systems, I really think uh, Beach has done great service to the original core design uh, that Schaefer implemented, but has taken it in so many interesting and brilliant new ways. I'm still not quite sold on everything yet. I need to play some more campaigns out. I need to get my pacing back because I shouldn't be, you know, discovering flight in 1940. Something's clearly wrong with me uh, (laughs) that this is what's going on because, you know, you have to stop and build new things, right? Those 11 turns I spend building some concert hall so I can get some freaking Beethoven dude. Those are 11 turns I could be spending building a library or pumping that into science or something. Those are those are important turns. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, system stuff I have to learn. But I am a huge fan of what Beach and Firaxis have done here. Um, I'm kind of worried that... I'm not sure I want another expansion. I'm not sure I want another Civ either. 
Um, I would kind of like to let this game sit for a long time uh, so people can study it instead of, but I know there's going to be pressure from 2K to, you know, let's get the next expansion out or the next, announce the next Civ, which will then take away a lot of these systems that were, we already have, just like Civ 5 took out religion uh, from Civ 4. Things are going to be taken away, and I don't want that. I like the Civ I have now, so let me keep this for a while. Uh, let's get used to this system, and there aren't any more. I'll, I'll accept a, 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 a Canadian Civ DLC, but I think <laughs> I think I'm kind of done. Well, what else could they add with DLC? I mean, it more would just cultures, yeah, it would just be so more, scenarios, scenarios yeah. and culture. That's because this only came with uh, what two scenarios, which is the Scramble for Africa and the American Civil War, um, which are interesting scenarios. Uh, but there's not exactly a, a great deal of them. No one plays Civ from the scenarios, do they? Well, no, no, <laughs> not really. Mind you, the, la- the last time we said who plays single-player campaigns in RTSs, we got a lot of angry mail. So I'm sure the people <laughs> out there who play these and like them and enjoy them, we're not judging you, we're just saying you're weird. Well, what was the... Uh, there was the space one for Civ Four. Um, I yes. can't remember the name for it. That was wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed that. It was really well put together. There were some really interesting ones in the expansion for Civ Three. Um, I remember playing a lot of those. Like yes. there was one, the, the Mesoamerican one. That was a lot. Ah, of fun. yeah, yeah. So maybe it's just Civ Five doesn't have great scenarios. <laughs> so, I think I think what Troy said about how like he thinks that this is roughly equivalent to Civ 4 or parallel or whatever, but he can't go back. That's pretty much where I am. It kind of reminds me of Master of Orion 1 and 2. Um, Rob can set this part out, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Since we know but, he hates them, yes. Uh, the first Master of Orion had some of the best balanced like, galactic power. Just the like there would be one moment where suddenly a peaceful galaxy turned into a perfectly balanced war right down the middle that just destroyed everything on the front lines. It was like the World War One of that I've never seen in any strategy game before or after. But Master of Orion 2 added so much cool stuff that I don't go back and play Master of Orion 1 when I feel like getting back to that. It's always Master of Orion 2, and that's kind of where I am with to five like the one unit per hex um i really think the graphics are incredibly attractive and just the whole kind of feel of it except maybe the music it's generally better um and a lot of the systems are so much simpler and more accessible and not annoying in the way that civ 4 could make them uh so like if I'm going to be playing Civ, I'm going to probably keep at this one, but I will miss the way that Civ Four implemented religion. See, I'll be honest. I, for, you know, two things here. First of all, I think you're all bullshitting yourselves. I think this is about graphics. Like, <laughs> real talk, I think a huge part of this is Civ Five is gorgeous. Civ Four is attractive, but it's it's not as beautiful. It's not as pleasing yeah, to look it's at. It's what Troy said. It's the stacks of Doom. Oh no 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 no! You people just oh my god! Just stop whining about the stacks of Doom. Oh my god! No, there's the most overdone complaint. I I I think Civ Four is actually a beautiful game. The colors, the deep, rich colors of it is amazing. The land masses look incredible, and I think that the actual models of the units look really good too. Yeah, much better. The unit models are much better. I think. Yeah, it's it's it is the stacks of Doom. I um I enjoy like 
actually thinking about where I'm going to place my units. And I enjoy the idea that I can't just send this vast army to completely surround a city because I actually like have there's limited space. Whereas in Civ 4, it's just pack everything that you've got in one tile. That's not very strategic. I kind of, going no, back... No, I that find is that the most strategic. That is the most strategic. Okay, <laughs> you're it's not, not tactical. Of... <laughs> it is strategic as hell, okay? Because here's the thing, right? You know how you stop the Stacks of Doom? You have a few of your own. You have a military in place ready to fight a goddamn war. Yeah, but my and... complaint isn't the enemy using Stacks of Doom. It's me using Stacks of Doom. They could do whatever they want. I feel like shit when I use them. <laughs> it's just very boring now. And I'll admit I didn't have as much of a problem with it until Civ Five came along. But it was like it opened my eyes. I'm like, what have I been doing with my life? <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Why do I have 50 muskets and yeah. the same thing? Why do I click every single one? I just, I, I went back a little while ago and played Civ 4. And, and honestly, and as much as I enjoyed every other aspect of it, this, the Stacks of Doom, I was just like, this is really dumb. Uh, I just couldn't get into it anymore. So that's I, what it is. It's not graphics. Try going back and playing Civ 2, where the Stacks of Doom takes on the other meaning, because you defeat one unit in a stack, you defeat Ugh. everything in the stack. So, yeah, yeah. the stack of your own Doom in Civ 2. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I don't know. Civ 4, I find the Stack of Doom is the expression of your strategic prowess. Uh, because hey, if you can if you can create how a, big's your stack of doom? Right? You can, yeah, it's oh, it is it is prodigious. Uh, it is uh, just just a proud tower. Um, but the 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 point the point is though, it's an expression of just your you just mind boggling military industrial capacity, uh, which is fine. Whereas I think too often Civ Five still errs on the side of cutesy defensive tricks, like units sort of stay within the defensive umbrella of their city, and then their city has defensive upgrades in general, and so it takes an absurd number of units to take. Yeah, you know, just a just a moderately defended city. Uh, it almost sounds like a real siege, Rob. <laughs> well, no, no, but that's not. But uh, no, not every siege is the siege of Byzantium. You know, yeah, and I kind of feel like that's sometimes how Civ Five. Oh, I yeah. disagree. If you've got a weak city, it's got no walls. You can take that in like a couple of turns, even if you don't have a vast army. I think that the cap, like when you've got capitals and you're taking them, yeah, it takes a while. But that makes sense. They're well defended. You know, they're meant to last out against sieges. Uh, I think it works. It makes I, sense. I, I think I think it hurts the AI more than help. That makes the more the game more interesting. Just because like I've had just too many cases where like my guys can sort of you know rally in the hills around one of my cities and just demolish a huge invading force because there's just not enough physical space for those units to really weigh in. Yeah, well, the, a, the, a, the AI the, is still not great at fighting wars. Let's be straight about that. Yeah, it's never had the but, like it, as a series. It's never had the best AI. But I think that the AI had a better chance at doing things in the early game in previous civs. I think that Rob yeah. is right about how the cities. Um, you never see a city change hands until it becomes like the late medieval era in Civ Five. Unless you were doing God, it, the or the Huns are in your game. Goddamn like, Assyrians! Yeah, maybe the Assyrians too, but the 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 civs that have the special siege yeah. units can maybe do it. But oh. anyone else, like you're not going to see like Rome and Greece trading cities um, until you get into the late game anymore. Yeah, just park and, an archer in the hills and with a melee unit to defend them. The city defense 
you know, the city attacks, man, you can really screw some guys up. But don't you think yeah. that has more to do with the fact that you're not just attacking units, you're also attacking the city itself, uh, rather than it just being a problem with changing from Stacks of Doom to the new mechanics? Because it's the it's you're actually trying to conquer the city rather than just marching in if it's undefended. I think maybe the city's a little too durable for its yeah. own good. I think is is maybe the issue. Maybe it hits a little mm. too hard. It's just it's a balance thing. But like once once you create the situation where there's only so much physical space for units to maneuver into position to attack a city, and the city itself can attack, and then if there's a defensive unit or two occupying defense positions around that city now you only have uh so it, you know instead of the six adjacent hexes uh to the city you're attacking uh now you have at best four of them where you can deploy units but let's face it it's probably on the coast and you may not have naval support so maybe you're looking more at three hexes that can actually be effective in the attack i think it starts to, I, I think it just creates a, a a major problem uh that the ai has an even harder problem solving uh than than humans it's just it's 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 the one thing that's always sort of raised hackles for me about uh civ five's approach to the military i love the idea of it i just find in practice it can be a little too um the borders can be a little too static because of that that said i've seen but that is the issue then not so much that you have a problem with you going out and conquering other civilizations but it's when it comes to them trying to conquer you you have it too easy of a, a, a time defending rather than it being too much of a pain in the arse to attack. Well, and they don't attack each other, or they don't succeed at attacking each other. I've seen con I've seen plenty of civilizations completely wiped off the face of the map by each other. But when? When does that start? Oh yeah, I mean that does tend to start in the medieval era yeah, and after. Sounds, yeah, it's it's definitely not in the ancient era. But I can yeah. I don't have as much of a problem with that. I mean, I kind of... The well, we know you're playing pacifism, so... <laughs> not anymore, I'm not. Um, but I, I, quite, I quite like having that opportunity for civilizations to maybe get their footing, expand a little bit, and become actual threats before the war has happened. Um, because then, by the time you get to the medieval era, well, then you've still got all of the civilizations there, and it becomes uh, a, a busier world. Yeah, I, I always like the early game. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly why, but like I, I love the parts where you like pick your cities while trying to defend against the other civilizations and like get that balance right. And I don't think Civ Five has ever really had that balance right. And I think part of that is because it did a good thing where it made expansion much more difficult with the happiness hits from building new cities. But um, I think that manifests as a, a much more passive early game. So I'm just going to make two observations here. First, I would like to say that 10, 15 minutes ago, I was trying to bring the show to a nice natural close as we summarized our thoughts about Brave New World, and it turned into a debate about the AI and the relative merits of Civ 4 and Civ 5, uh, which is the most, I think, Civ fan to, thing to happen uh, that possibly could have there. Uh, so, so well done. You ruined the segue with an AI debate. Hooray! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. If, if, Good if job, they, guys. If they made better AI, this wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> True, it's 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 for Axe's fault. Uh second, I, I think the uh the, the clear uh the clear fix to a lot of these complaints that we're we're circling around here is we need to fire up Pit Boss and get this multiplayer uh session rolling between yeah. between the group of us. Well they need to fix Pit Boss so that you can actually 
have it running and do other things on your computer. Or maybe you just need an upgrade. Oh, basically, no. You need another computer with um, another copy of Civilization on it. That's what they're trying to do. They want to. I have the last sales. patch fixed that. <laughs> Did it? I haven't. I haven't looked at it since I posted in our in our little group. All right. Well, we'll we'll check we'll check it out tonight, uh, or this or or very soon. Yeah. But, but I, yeah, I, think... I have some time. We can test test some pit boss. I'm I'm down for that. Yeah, me too. All so right. Do you have so... to sleep sometime? Uh, it's only like eleven twenty in the evening. This is a guy who, right. who has been up with us till five in the morning playing March of the Evil. <laughs> that's true. Like later than I, that. I just like, don't know I if that's s- normal for him like it is for me. It, it it was more normal when I worked primarily for an American website. It's less normal now, but it's for Civ. I can do that. <laughs> All things are possible for Civ. All right, so that does it for our show on Brave New World. I think overall, though, we can safely say highly recommended for anyone who's enjoyed Civ Five at all. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. All right, and uh, Troy, I think I'm going to say to you, I think you had my favorite summary of uh, Brave New World when you said it has its cake, eats it, and then keeps baking. Uh, I think that was maybe the the pithiest summary of everything I love about uh, Brave New World. Uh, and you should all give it a shot if you're at all Civ fans. Uh, so that's been Three Moves Ahead on Brave New World. Uh, we'll be back next week. As always, my thanks to our guests for joining me on a Sunday. And my thanks to our producer, Michael Hermes, for cutting this episode together. Until next week, good night. Bye, all. Ciao. <laughs> See you. God, we need a better we need a better outro. You need some you need some wailing guitars. Yes! Yes! Would that be amazing? Oh my god. <laughs> just like just like a shrieking guitar solo that just goes on and on and on. <laughs>